All right, welcome to the Leadership Roundtable with Dr. Conway Edwards. And what we've been doing on this podcast is just exploring what it looks like to have leaders from all across the country joining us, and we get to sit at the table and learn from what's going on across the church and our country. So I'm your host, Matt Anderson, today, and today we're thrilled to have Pastor Brian Loritz from Abundant Life. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Good to be here in the great nation of Texas. Yes, Texas, where we have the real barbecue, right? right. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, today, uh, you're, you're in from California. We're in to talk about this conversation of race in the church and how does ethnicity, how does all this play into the church? So just wanted to have you share with us a little bit about what you've been learning, what you've been sharing and how we can grow and what changes we need to consider making. That's a great question, Matt. Well, I I think it's important to say, first of all, this this isn't a new conversation. Like I've I've always been passionate about multi-ethnic church. All the churches I've pastored have been multi-ethnic. Um, but sometimes I feel like I've, I've got the label of kind of pioneering something new when really if you study the scriptures, the New Testament, uh, the norm in the first century church was multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. So whenever, again, Paul walks into a city, he's got two questions. Where's the synagogue? Because I want to reach the Jews. And then after that, where do the Gentiles hang out? Because I want to reach them too. I mean, that's right. Romans 1.16, right? Yes. Uh, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first, not only, and then also to the Greek. And so what he does is he, some Jews get saved, some Gentiles get saved. Right. You know, Acts 17, when he's at Athens, you know, he goes to the synagogue to Mars Hill. Acts 19 is in Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue. Uh, than the hall of Tyrannus. But now he's got a problem on his hands, right? Because these two groups hate each other's guts. right? Um, and the pragmatic thing would have been to do two separate churches, one on the north side of town for the Jews, one on the south side of town for the Gentiles. That's very pragmatic. Right. In fact, the church growth movement here in the United States with uh, McGavern and C. Peter Wagner and all those guys, which they've repented of, that was that was really their idea. They called it the homogeneous unit principle. Mm-hmm. And what they said was, if you want to plant a big church, find your constituency and cater to your constituency. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay. So it's incredibly effective from a pragmatic perspective. The only problem that is, it's just not biblical. Right. <laughs> so Paul doesn't start two churches. He starts one. Mm-hmm. And he says, look. Now that you've been reconciled to Christ vertically, I need you to show that that's authentically happened by you being reconciled to one another horizontally. That's why verses like Galatians 3.28, where he talks about in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, um, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not not, um, denying differences, right? Right. Because this is the same guy who gave instructions to men, instructions to women. He's just saying those are no longer barriers to fellowship. Okay. So that's what I would say is we got to start with, hey, look, I'm just trying to trend us back to our first century roots. Right. That's all we're saying here. In fact, have you ever wondered why Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, in writing to the Romans, talks about food? Because hmm. they're multi-ethnic churches, right? If they're homogenous churches, eat your pork sandwich and... Be quiet. Mm -hmm. But because they're multi-ethnic churches, it's a problem when the Gentile family from church invites the Jewish family over for dinner, and the Jewish family comes and there's a slab of ribs. 
Right. Now, if I'm coming from Memphis, they would be dry rub, of course. Of course, right? of course, right. Um, so Paul writes about food, but that's an indicator like he's dealing with multi-ethnic churches. Mm -hmm. So trying to get us back there, this is more than what you wanted, but I think that's the theological foundation okay. for why this is an important topic. There's also sociological foundations, which are more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And again, here's where Dr. Corey Edwards is, hel is helpful, because she tells us the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than the church. Wow. And the average churches in the community, excuse me, the average schools in the community that the church sits in is 20 times more diverse. So what's happening is, once again, the church is lagging behind. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is, though, we're dealing with a culture, especially younger generations, who that's what they're used to. That's what they're hungering for. So I think this is our moment. Like, wow. this, is, this is probably the most opportune time in world history. For us to step up. For us to step up and do it. Wow. How did we get so far from biblical to where we are now? Where, where is it, for back, lack of a better term, where is it broken so bad? Where do we just need to start over or where do we need to start mending? It's, it's just the fallen human heart, right? Um, so C.S. Lewis talks about the, I think he says in Mere Christianity, the fountainhead to all vice mm -hmm. is pride. And, and, and what he's really saying is the epicenter to every sin, what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the sin beneath the sin, is just pride. Well, Lewis presses this forward by saying, in order for pride to exist, there must be competition, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and that flourishes off of a sense of difference. So for example, if all the schools were the same, where would be the pride in me sending my kid to a school? So private schools need public schools in order for me to feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. Right? Wow. Um, good neighborhoods need bad neighborhoods in order for me to feel better about myself. So we kind of label things. Well, this is where American slavery mm -hmm. really became pernicious. Because what we did was, for the first time really in human history, see, first century slavery was predicated on just a defeated nation. Mm -hmm. American slavery was predicated on color. Mm -hmm. Those are two different things. Right. So we attached value to a person's color. And even within that, there's variations, right? Light mm -hmm. skin versus dark skin, traditionally, and all that that meant. So I think that's where it became really pro problematic, was about 400 years ago, mm -hmm. with the slave trade, color-based, that's where the problem really went to another level. It was always there, mm -hmm. because it's a part of the fallen human condition. The devil took it up another notch with American slavery. And here we have, 400 years later, still right. wrestling with this. Right. Um, it, it even, gosh, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, so what, what I like to tell people all the time, Matt, is what we want to do now is, well, why are we talking about this? Mm -hmm. Let's just be organic. Yeah. Let's just let it. And I just remind people, racism and segregation were the product of centuries-long intentionality. Mm -hmm. They were intentional about it. Right. They set up laws, they organized a constitution, they determined what's, where you could live, redlining. It was intentional. You're not gonna undo that organically. Mm -hmm. You have to have the same intentionality in the other direction times a thousand. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a, what the enemy wants us to do is to be passive about it. Wow. And you can't be passive. Wow. You know, I accidentally got into a situation where this became real for me. When I was in college <laughs> many years ago, uh, a friend on an athletic team I was on invited me to a Bible study. At that time, I did not know it was a Campus Crusade Impact Movement Bible study. <laughs> and um, here I come walking into Campus Bible Study, aka it was like a little Thursday night church service. And I walked in and all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, I'm the only white person in this room. And I had this moment of the most awkwardness I've ever felt, probably that I can remember. And I'm sitting in this room and everybody's clapping and everybody's singing and it's totally student-led. And uh, then the guy who came up and spoke at the time, his name's Larry Page. He's on staff now at Pastor Keith Battle at Zion Church. Wow. Larry Page gets up and he just presents the word and he's so practical and real. And I just remember in that moment saying, you know what? Um, I've never heard the Bible presented like that. I don't care how awkward I have to feel. This is my home. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, uh, I just, I, I, I pressed through the awkwardness in a way that I had never really had to in my life. That's good. I had never been forced into that situation. And well, I really wasn't forced, but I, but, but I know so many people of the same ethnicity as myself who have never been in that situation. Absolutely. To challenge their awkwardness right. and to be put into a situation and, and have that choice of, am I going to turn and go away or am I going to press through this? And it changed my life forever. Yeah, it's interesting. One scholar says that um, homogeneous churches actually entrench racism. Mm-hmm. And the argument here is, listen, uh, Matt, you're white, I'm black, mm -hmm. and we can even press the differences further. We're both men. Right. I mean, that's something we have in common. But because of all of that, we have a unique worldview, and all of us have a unique set of biases. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as objectivity. Right. I have a lens through which I see things. You have a lens mm -hmm. through which you see things. And so if you only do relationships primarily, with people, and I know no two people like see everything the same, but if you only do relationships primarily with people who see it the way you see it, that doesn't challenge your biases, it actually entrenches them. Mm. So to go to a white, wealthy, conservative church, and you're white, wealthy, conservative, that's going to mm. entrench it. Wow. So as a means of sanctification, mm -hmm. I need to be in relationships with people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like me. Isn't that the beauty of marriage, yes. by the way, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Most couples I know are incredibly different. But those differences, if you ride it out, are, are it's supposed to be a means of sanctification. It's supposed to sharpen you. Why? What's happening? My wife is pushing against the biases I have, and I'm pushing against the biases she has, right? Well, we, I not only need that male to female, I also need that in ethnically different relationships, mm -hmm. right? Wow. Um, how, how does that practically look when you have individuals who go to a church that may be entrenching them in their current status or whatever that might be? How do people start to intentionally go outside their comfort zone? What does that look like? Or how, how has that worked at your church or how you've worked with individuals? Yeah, so I want to I be careful here. I don't think every church has a call to be multi-ethnic. I think every church okay. is called to represent and reach its community. Right. Right. So, look, 
Uh, if I'm planting a church in North Dakota, probably not going to be multi-ethnic. No. Right? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Right. So do the best you can with who God's called you to be. Okay. One of my best friends in life, um, he, he, his grandfather started a very well-known hotel. If I were to tell you the hotel chain, you would know it. This guy's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, he came up to me after church one Sunday. He's white. And he says, I need to do dinner with you. It's my first time meeting him. And uh, so we do dinner. We start to get to know one another. And he says, over time, he says, look, uh, I was aware that if I did nothing, I would kind of grow up in this little insular, entitled bubble. Wow. So he says, I needed to do something proactive. So he says, I enrolled in a black seminary. Okay. Just to see how they approach scripture. Mm -hmm. While there, I began praying a simple prayer. God, give me African-American friends. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and said, I think you're an answer to that prayer. Mm -hmm. Man, we went duck hunting together. I'd never been duck hunting before <laughs> in my life. Now, okay. granted, he goes, he's a member of a duck hunting club. Okay. With the CEO of Walmart, right? Wow. So it's a little different yeah. <laughs> how they you. duck hunt. Um, and we have real conversations. Yeah. Right? Um, and... He would say there's a greater sense of empathy. Mm -hmm. and, and out of that relationship, some beautiful things happened. So here's one of the conversations we had. He says, uh, this is like a year into the relationship. He says, look, man, I'm, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to open my eyes to some things. He says, my grandfather started this business during Jim Crow, mm -hmm. which means a lot of the money that I'm living off of is unjust money. Mm. He says, I got to do something about that. So out of that, he starts buying homes in an impoverished community. Wow. And he gives them to single moms, mm -hmm. takes them through financial counseling. It's this beautiful thing. He's done that with a lot of single moms. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't believe in gentrification. Mm -hmm. So he's not trying to buy these homes, sell them to white people, move in, increase people. He wants indigenous people to that community, but it's him wrestling with what does restitution look mm -hmm. like? Well, that gets born and bred out of relationship. Mm. Um, he invited me to play golf one time at a restricted country club. There we go. Like, there's one African-American member, she lives, she lives in another state. Wow. I said, man, I feel gross being here. He said, what are you talking about? He had no idea. I mean, he, he knew, but he didn't really think about it. And uh, I said, man, I can't play here again. He goes, why? Because I said, my people aren't allowed here. Well, three months later, he comes back to me and goes, I got you a membership. He says, we need to tear down some barriers. I'm like, oh, hold on. Would have appreciated you consulting me a little bit on that. I don't know if I want to be Jackie Robinson, but all of this right. is born out of relationship. Now, on my side of the table, Matt, whenever something happens and I'm tempted to go, forget white people. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit will bring his face and other white faces to mind and say, hold on a second. Here are some authentic white people who are doing a lot of good. And so it calibrates me from talking in destructive generalities and stereotypes. A friend of mine says it this way, proximity breeds empathy. Yes. Distance breeds suspicion. Mm -hmm. When I'm far from you, I can hide behind generalities. But I'm, when I'm walking with you, I can't do that anymore. There's there's empathy there. So. I see you're a real person. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what would you say to the person, the white person, who um, 
is struggling with this. And when you talk about your friend right there, you're, you're going to have somebody who's struggling with this and say, you know what? Um, that's not me. That happened then. Why do I need to wrestle with the idea or thought of restitution? It's good. So here's what white people need to come to terms with. Mm -hmm. Um, white people don't see themselves in solidarity with each other. They see themselves as a collection of individuals. Right? So when the um, black young man was killed for just being in his apartment mm -hmm. by the white Dallas female police officer, right. black people all across the country were grieving. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we see ourselves in solidarity. That's not how white people think. And I'm not even attaching a moral value to that. Right. So that's the first thing. They see themselves as a collection of individuals. And because of things like white privilege, mm -hmm. whites um, don't think in terms of whiteness. They have that luxury, mm -hmm. right? Uh, one scholar talks about it's like having one arm in a two-armed society. So right now, Matt, you and I have two arms that are fully functioning, but we're not cognizant of it. That's good. It's just an assumption that we make. Mm -hmm. But if I have one arm, I'm constantly mm -hmm. in tune with my limitations. Right. The minority experience is having one arm, constantly in tune with my limitations, among a two-armed society. Now let me, minorities aren't going to like what I'm about to say. Okay. I hate the phrase white privilege mm -hmm. because it demonizes privilege as if privilege is innately wrong. Okay. If privilege was innately wrong, then Jesus was sinful. No one was born with more privilege than Jesus. It's wow. Philippians 2. It's mm -hmm. God in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Everything. Tell me who's more privileged than that. The issue is not privilege. It's the stewardship mm -hmm. of privilege. Okay. So now I go back to Philippians 2, where Paul in that great kenosis passage, speaking of the privilege of Jesus, says that even though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. So the issue is not privilege. Listen, my parents are about to celebrate 48 years of marriage. That's a measure of privilege. <laughs> yes, it is. Isn't that privilege? Wow. Yes. Everyone has a certain measure of privilege. Now, some people have more. The issue is the stewardship of privilege. So as a white person, you should not feel bad about being white. Mm -hmm. Or about the privilege you have. You should feel bad if you're not stewarding it well. See, Tim good. Keller talks about disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. So a white person should go, I'm very privileged but I don't want to be an accomplice to the existing crimes, structurally. Mm, that's good. See, that's the other thing. Whiteness always views sin in personal language. This is what uh, Michael Emerson talks about in Divided by Faith, where it's both personal and systemic and structural. Mm -hmm. Here's the last thing I'll say. Read the story of Zacchaeus from a structural injustice perspective. What is he called? He's called not just the tax collector, but the chief tax collector, mm -hmm. which means he has other tax collectors beneath him who are contributing to a system that is defrauding people. Mm. Right? He's the head of the Jericho cartel right. in mafia speak. Right. Now, we know the story. If you've been around the Bible, Jesus shows up coming to your house. He comes to his house. And while over, to, over his house, Zacchaeus goes, you know what? I've wronged a lot of people. Up to half my goods I'll give to the poor, and those who I'm wronged, I'll restore it unto them, what is it, fourfold, tenfold, something like that. Jesus goes, today salvation's come to your house. Not once does Jesus go, hey, you've wronged a lot of people, why don't you make restitution? Doesn't say that. But, but because now he's going, I've contributed to a system of injustice. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm now going to do gospel restitution in repairing that system, Jesus says that's a sign of your salvation. I think a sign of white people's salvation is they are not passive, but they're going, historically, I have been a part of a system of injustice. Mm -hmm. How can I now proactively repair the breach? That's good. Wow, that's good. That's real. Um, I've heard you talk about uh, when we talk about our churches and leadership teams and who's on our team and who's not on our team, this topic of, uh, you call it a C1, C2, C3, and different kinds of individuals, if we're looking at our church leadership teams to bring on our teams, that uh, may be a good fit or not a good fit for what we're trying to do. Could you share a little bit about that? I know yeah. we're going to be constrained on time, but yeah. Yeah. it's so good. I'll try to do it in 52 seconds. There so the basic thought is ethnicity and culture are not the same thing. So blacks aren't monolithic, whites aren't monolithic. With each ethnicity, there's three different cultures. C1, C2, C3, all this is in the Bible. C1s are people from one ethnicity who have assimilated into another. You don't want them at the highest levels of leadership, too safe. C3s are people of one ethnicity who are culturally inflexible. You don't want them at the highest levels of leadership because they won't adapt and they won't change. They're inflexible. In the middle are C2s. C2s are culturally flexible people who can drift in and out of various contexts without losing who they are in the process. That's Paul. He's able to go to the synagogue, able to preach preach to Greeks, but still be Paul at the same time. At the highest levels of leadership, you need a C2. Wow. What is a... So, just briefly, what are some real examples of a C1, C2, C3 that we may have seen? (laughs) I've heard you talk about the show, The Fresh Prince. Yeah, yeah, C1, Fresh Prince, that's Carlton. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to be careful. I'm not questioning his blackness, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Ethnicity is fixed. Mm -hmm. Culture is fluid. Okay. So, he's just assimilated into a white um, ideological worldview. On the show, not real life, a C3 is uh, Will. He's West right. Philadelphia born and raised on the playground. You know it. Most of my days. So he's, he's rigid and inflexible. On the TV show, he's wearing the jacket inside out. C2 would be someone sticking with an acting motif like Denzel, who can play a wide range mm-hmm. but still be who he is. It, musically speaking, a C2 would be Ray Charles. Ray can give you R&B, he can give you gospel, he can give you country. That's right. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So, uh, so when we're building our teams, I think one of the things we want to do always is have a diverse, depending on the setting we're in, being intentional with diversity on our teams. The point is we're looking for a C2, right? At the highest levels of leadership. Gotcha, okay. Uh, there's a place for C1s at lower level levels. Gotcha. I think a C3 even, I've consulted with churches who... We're looking for someone to head up their community development initiatives. Okay. And they needed someone with a bunch of street cred. Gotcha. And you don't want to send Carlton to knock on doors in the hood. (laughs) Right. But you could send Ice Cube. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm just saying don't give them a mic. Right. I got you. Right. Yeah. Something for us to think about, and we'll have some notes on this on our show notes on the podcast. Uh, I just want to thank you for stopping in with Thanks, us today, man. Pastor Brian. Wow, we've got we've got a long ways to go. We've come a, a little bit. We've got a long ways to go, and it's encouraging just to know that there is a roadmap. It's not brand new. It comes from the Bible, yeah. and uh, it's encouraging to have these kind of conversations awesome. with pastors from across the country. So thank you for joining us thank today, you. Pastor Brian. Thank you. We'll see you guys next time.